Hello and welcome to another edition of Outside is Overrated. This is episode 10. I can't believe it. We made double digits. I'm your host, Tom Awesome, and joining me once again today for the third show in a row, a new OIO record, is Hobbybox Joey Burns. Hello, hello, hello. Is that an acceptable introduction? Hobbybox Joey Burns? Normally it's Hobbybox Burns or Joey Burns. Uh, anything's fine. And that's what we strive for here. <laughs> Hooray for fine. <laughs> We've got a great show for you today. We are going to be talking about three very topical topics. Topical topics. Wow, I really thought that one through. Yeah, that works. Yeah, it totally works. It's great. It's radio magic. We're going to hit this one out of the park. We're going to be talking about sports because this is March, and the month of March is prime for March Madness. We're going to talk about swords. Game of Thrones Season 8 is on the horizon, and for the first time since the show debuted, I'm all caught up, so I'm excited to talk some Game of Thrones. It's about time. It's, it's been a long haul. Most of my friends would agree with you, and we'll <laughs> dive into that a little bit more a little bit later, and we're also going to talk about space. Marvel released a new movie this month, Captain Marvel. We're going to dive into that and its place in the Marvel Cinematic Universe leading into Avengers Endgame. So yeah, so sit back, relax, tap your toes, have some tapioca, and listen to these topical topics. Tapioca and topical topics, I love it. <laughs> so it's been an interesting ride here at OAO for the podcast. I've been doing this for about two years now, actually almost exactly two years in the first year and nine months or so, I put together seven podcasts, and now, in the last three months, we've put together three episodes, which is an exciting pace, and we intend to keep this up for all of 2018. Now, some people may be wondering, why did I finally get off my ass and start doing the podcast <laughs> with some regularity? And the honest truth is, because I got a sponsor this year, and I promised that sponsor 12 episodes in 12 months, so here we are. So thank you to our wonderful sponsor, Premier Health. You can check out their website at PremierHealthMN.com. If you like OIO, if you enjoy listening to us every month, you know, it would probably be many months in between episodes, if not for our sponsor's generosity. So thank you again, Premier Health. You know, if push came to shove and, like, you just couldn't record anything till December, you could have just done, like, the 12 days of podcasts leading up to Christmas and just, like... Knock one out, like, each day and then post it the next day. and Yeah, by the end we'd be down to, like, stream of consciousness. Like, well, this is what I bought for my brother-in-law for Christmas, so that's pretty neat. And uh, I had a ham sandwich for lunch today, which would never be true. I'm trying to eliminate carbs. So sandwiches, not really a thing for me anymore. I had a wonderful uh, salad with roasted chicken on it. I've been doing a lot of that as well. Go team. <laughs> Go Healthy Tom and Joey. We're going to live forever so we can keep doing this podcast for you forever. It's getting to that point. We'll be able – but I mean, you'd have to think sometime soon it's going to have to get to that point where, you know, people just don't die until people kill them. Then it's like freaking like blood sport world. I don't think I'll last very long in that world. I'll probably be in the first wave to go. I'm a lover, not a fighter, too. So, <laughs> month or March has been a pretty good month for us. We actually had our first gaming weekend in months. We have a core group of friends that gets together semi-regularly. We used to get together semi-regularly. It seemed like we got together for more board gaming weekends when I lived in Maryland and or you lived in Texas. That's true. <laughs> it's been about 11 months since we got the group together, but we finally got together early in the month. A quick rundown of the games that we played. We played two games with Quarriers. We played Dark Souls, the card game, which I loved. Memoir 44, one of our staples, which is when you rolled in. Uh, <laughs> yep. Not a knock on you. You had to work, so you made it when you could. Mm -hmm. uh, then we played Dead of Winter, which is the second time I played it. Very fun game. 
We played a game of Betrayal at Baldur's Gate. And then we closed the day with Scythe. 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 I, all my life, I thought the word was pronounced Scythe. Well, and it's funny because it even says in the, like, in the rule book, mm-hmm. like, how it's pronounced. You should have shown that to everyone because I don't know if you're jerking my leg or if that's how it's actually pronounced. Well, that's how it's pronounced. Yeah, Scythe. Save. Save. So that was an interesting game. I'd never played that one before. I played at all the other games at least once and most multiple times before, but Scythe was really interesting. Do you want to give kind of an overview of what Scythe is and how you win? So I, I believe like Board Game Geek it's explained as being a engine building game. Because basically what you're trying to do is you're setting up your people's economy to be as successful as you possibly can. And so Really, you want to make the most money by the end of the game. But you're on a map of uh, loosely based upon Europe, kind of, and you're moving your people around, adding workers, getting resources to build new things, to to make new advancements. Uh, and basically, by the end of the game, whoever has the most money wins. And you end up getting to the end of the game by spawning different victory points. And once somebody gets to six victory points then everything stops. You count up how much money people have and how much extra money they get and then kind of roll from there. Probably not the best game to play at the end of 16 hours of gaming. (laughs) With a bunch of people who had never played it before. That's true, but it was very fun. It goes up to five players. There's five unique factions, and each faction has like a unique ability just for their faction. Mm -hmm. For newcomers, it took a while to... For me to get into the flow of the game, I thought I was going to dominate by getting my entire workforce activated early. <laughs> but what I didn't realize was that makes it expensive to activate that workforce to actually make them do anything. So I recruited all the workers that I could possibly muster, everybody, <laughs> and then I could never afford to actually make them gather resources or do anything else. So I was hampered for most of the game trying to recover. So I've taught the game twice now and played it twice. So when we, when we played it, it was actually the first time I'd played it as well. I'd watched some videos to get a good grasp, a decent grasp of the rules. And it's fun because watching people play that game for the first time, every single... It's like watching a bunch of monkeys trying to F a coconut. No, well, kind of, not really. Um, <laughs> but you get to see it, like, click in each person's head individually. It's like, ah, this is what I have to do. Like, this is what this is trying to get me to do. And it's and then it's then And then it's that realization of... Well, I fucked everything up up until this point. So let's just start (laughs) over and do it all again. But it is really one of those games where you have to play it like a time to really get a grasp of it. But then after that, you have lots of different options and ways that you can approach it. You can't really do everything. And so you really have to focus in on a few different things and try to do as best as you can with that. Um, The second time I played it uh, was a couple weekends later. It really is one of those games that's, I think, best with, like, the max player count or close to it. Uh, The thing that we had that was an issue was one person was kind of off on their own area, and then the other two of us were kind of clustered near each other. And so it made it difficult to go and check that other person, and they ended up getting kind of just a ton of resources before we could kind of address it. I guess the other thing I learned from that gaming weekend is... I'm a lot better at teaching games than actually playing and winning them <laughs> because I, I've played Scythe twice now and I did not win either time, uh, even though I was the most knowledgeable about the game both times. Aha, you um, suck again. Yep, and this weekend I'll probably play it again, and so it'll probably be 
for 3, but we'll see what happens. We'll see. I shall be cheering for all of your adversaries. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. And as a duly elected spokesperson for all our friends, I think I can comfortably state it's fun. Yeah, I want to play it again. It, it's kind of interesting. It goes up to five players, but everyone's kind of doing their own thing. There wasn't as much conflict or fighting as mm-hmm. I thought that there might be from the beginning. Yeah, and it even mentions that in the book that even though they have these big mechs, which makes you think, I need to take these and fight people with them, mm-hmm. it's really much more so about like being a deterrent. Uh, so so similar to like Doctor Strangelove or like nuclear warfare in the 40s and then the, into the Cold War after that, it's like having all this so that it's like, well, you're not going to fight me because I got these guys. Really, you're just using your mechs to move a bunch of workers everywhere. Or you're just sitting all your workers on one spot for the entire game. Yeah, I, uh, I am familiar with that strategy. I would like to point out that in our session, I was the first person to build a mech. So, uh, Casey and Dunham, you can both suck it. First mech forever. I also got to join the legions of player who enjoyed the game of Gloomhaven this year. One of my friends picked up a copy. We put together a group of four. We put together an all-day gaming session a couple of Saturdays ago, and uh, it was really awesome. We played the first scenario. We got our asses kicked. <laughs> we went back to town. We bought some stuff. We came back. We played it the same scenario on easy to try to advance the story and give ourselves another option for things that we could do. Mm-hmm. We unlocked another side quest, and we we're a little crunched for time. I had a hard stopping point that we just blew right by and got me in trouble at home. Sorry, Oops. my love. But we did that side quest, and they wanted to do that one on easy, too. And, like, I get there are points when you want to set things to easy to progress. I get that. But mm-hmm. for me, the first time I encounter something, I want to play it on normal or hard difficulty as kind of a benchmark of what we're capable of. Right. And and I think it's because we've, we've failed, like, three or four scenarios now in that game. And, yeah, it does suck. It sucks when you fail because you're like, well, I went through all of this and didn't get anything for it. Which isn't entirely true. You keep your money. You keep your experience. So, you know, as long as you're using your abilities and doing things, you're always going to come away at least a little bit stronger. Yeah, and but I would still, like, playing with, like, a difficult... Like, the normal difficulty is pretty difficult in that game. Playing with it on that is so rewarding when you actually, like, by the skin of your teeth accomplish it. We've had that happen quite a few times now. Like, the first scenario was that, where I was the tank of the group, and I got exhausted before even going into the last room. And the rest of the group, one other person got exhausted partway into that room. And it was with the last activation that he had, Lance was able to jump in and loot the treasure and finish it. And it was just like, and everybody was just like screaming. And it, it, and it's, it's a crazy game that way. Cause we have that a few times where it all comes down to this. We had one scenario where we thought we were doomed. Like, it's like, there's no way we're going to accomplish this. And it's like, well, if I use this and go over there and then do this, I can get that as long as you guys can do this. And it was the same type of thing. It was like, last-ditch effort trying to finish it off and we accomplish it we're like that's awesome you know and so it, it really like gives you that much more of a reward when you i think challenge yourself and i think that's like also with dark souls and a lot of those games that's a lot of the reason why that has a lot of that pull is that for people is it's difficult but once you achieve it you're like i've done something you know exactly and i love that high of defeating something difficult moving on to our main topics today or before we move on to our main topics we want to give a quick shout out to follow us on social media. You can follow me on the Twitter machine at Tom underscore underscore awesome. 
Remember, two underscores, Tom underscore, underscore, awesome. You can follow Joey at Hobbybox Burns. No underscores, no awesomes. Mm-hmm. You can also follow the show on Facebook.com slash Outside is Overrated and Instagram at the inexplicably difficult to remember Outside underscore Overrated Pod. As a marketing guy, you really think that I would have come up with some better suggestions here, but you know, this is the life we're living. Yeah, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do. Indeed, and sometimes what you got to do is watch a whole bunch of college basketball. This is the month of March. Welcome to March Madness. Oh, 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 that's the NCAA calling. Uh, That's $16,000 in a podcast to say March Madness or to say Final Four or to infer that there is some sort of madness happening and it's the month of March. I look forward to posting a photo of my (laughs) cease and desist letter to... (laughs) Outside underscore overrated pod on the Instagrams. (laughs) So to me, March Madness is the most significant part of the month of March every year. Now, I'm not a huge college hoops fan. It's exciting for me when Minnesota gets in. And uh, when I worked in baseball and everyone was super into the tournament, I got more into it. Uh, It's not really my thing, but I enjoy filling filling out a bracket. Now, I think you take it to another level. Yeah, so my group of friends, it's always been kind of a big deal. And so... Uh, I don't even know how long we've been. It's probably, it's well over a decade now. We get together for the first weekend of the tournament, so Thursday through Sunday. And it's kind of an open door, so whenever you can make it, you can make it show up. And we get together at my friend Josh's house, and we all hang out, have multiple games on the TVs at all times, do all sorts of other things. And so, and then each day kind of has like a food theme. So today was Walking Tacos. Uh, because my friend's wife used to work at Subway. Friday is always Subway day, and Kelly always makes us sandwiches. That's, like, always what it is. That's awesome. Um, And then recently, one time we did the Feast of Fast Food, where everybody got into cars and went to different fast food places to get as much random fast food stuff as we could, brought it all back, and had, like, a huge buffet of fast food stuff. Now, was it a straight buffet, or was it, like, a fast food draft? Uh, it was basically whoever grabbed whatever. We tried to get, like, a good, like, six of whatever we grabbed. Then went to, like, Little Caesars and got some hot and ready's and all these other things. And, uh, yeah, that, ooh, felt, felt terrible after that. Uh, and then the next day I reheated some pizza with a bunch of tacos and a cheeseburger on it. That was, that was a new high or a new low, depending upon how you look at it. We'll stick with high. Yes. <laughs> that sounds amazing. We should totally do fast food buffet the next time we play <laughs> video games, or not video games, but board games with the rogue hippo. That, that would... <laughs> that sounds like a very pat-friendly activity. Though with, with Jake, we're going to make sure we have a plunger on hand. Um, and or a the few shitting machine, yes. the human shitting machine. <laughs> uh, and, and so now we don't really do the Feast of Fast Food anymore because of, you know salads and stuff but now it's sort of one sort of like ethnicity of random candies and things like that so last year they went to the asian food store and bought all sorts of asian candies and desserts and so this year it's middle eastern so i'm looking forward to seeing what that all entails tomorrow or on saturday uh and so on top of that then we have i have a march madness pool that i have sort of co-opted from a friend i used to work with and have made it into my own beast where everybody gets random amount of teams and as they win you make more money back and then there's like this number guessing part of it that goes with it so one of the ones is so one of the easier ones is you guess 
by the end of the second round, which conference is going to have the most wins and how many wins will that conference have. Uh, and then some of them get as crazy as an equation that takes into effect uh, one player's points and rebounds minus another player's amount of minutes scored. And then that ends up getting multiplied into another chunk of the equation that's the final four teams, the total amount of miles traveled throughout the entire tournament. Uh, so it gets a little off the rails and stuff, but uh, could you possibly make that any more complicated? Oh, oh, it's it's super complicated. I could show you the spreadsheet. It's all on Google spreadsheet. I always say it's the most fun you'll ever have on a spreadsheet, and uh, and so yeah, we run it through Google spreadsheets. It's a lot of fun. Takes a little work to get it going. Um, lots of work to rework all the money and stuff like that, but it works. It's fun. I was going to ask you about that. You invited me to be a part of it one league. I remember I had Elon that year, the mighty Phoenix. <laughs> And uh, I was never invited back, so I wasn't sure if it was folded or if he just found someone better to take my place. Yeah, I don't know what happened. So I had two for a while. And it wasn't I, quite that complicated when I did it. Was, yeah. We had like six teams, and that was kind mm-hmm. of it. I had two of them for a while, and then it kind of all collapsed and merged. Well, um, it's nice to know that I'm at the bottom of your second group of friends. <laughs> it's nice to know where I rank. I always I keep a running tally with all my friends. Your ranking in my list of friends will be adjusted accordingly. <laughs> So as big as the tournament is of March Madness, it is surprising to me that there is no longer a college basketball game, and on a bigger scale, no college sports games at all. And my understanding is that it's kind of a rights issue, but if I think you're a little bit better informed than I am, so take it away. It's all about Ed O'Bannon. number 37. So you remember the, well, really good college basketball player, but pretty mediocre college or NBA basketball player, Ed O'Bannon? Or is it Ed O'Banion? I can't remember for sure. No idea. Something along those lines. Well, um, so anyway, what happened was his NBA career never really took off. And so he was kind of like, well, you know, this guy that was in your college basketball game, EA Sports, looked a lot like me. And you made lots of money and the school made lots of money off of it. But I didn't make any money. And if you're using my likeness, I should get some sort of royalties. And so he was able to get enough players together to sue the NCAA for it. And at that point, and sue EA Sports. For EA Sports, because, you know, they're making quite a bit of money off of the games, it was probably worth it to combat against it. But for the NCAA, it was like, we're not making that much off of the licensing for all this stuff. So this is crap. And so that's why there aren't any NCAA basketball or football games anymore. Because the players just want their cut. It's similar to... You know, the, the whole argument between whether, you know, college football players should be paid or not in general now, too. It kind of is was the start of that. It's certainly understandable. I mean, I get the players beef. If, you know, if somebody was using Tom Awesome's likeness in a game and making money, I would certainly want my cut. But as a consumer, it's a bummer because those games were awesome. Mm-hmm. Now, NCAA basketball, I didn't play as many of those games. The only one that I can really remember playing had Kevin Love on the cover. And for whatever reason, this was a theme in the NCAA football games as well, but I always wanted to make Hawaii a powerhouse. (laughs) It's funny, my friend Josh, he also is the same. He was always Hawaii. I mean, maybe it's because it's paradise and I wanted to live in paradise and that would be a great place to form a powerhouse. Maybe it's because it was a little ridiculous to think of Hawaii as a sports powerhouse. (laughs) But they were kind of my team. And I remember the version that I played, you could upgrade facilities and... Had a cool structure, but for whatever reason, I never got super into it. Did you play a lot of college basketball games? Um, I I had I only had one college basketball game, 
And my thing that I like to do with those games is I like to pick a obscure or very mediocre school. Like the mighty Elon Phoenix? Well, close. It was actually the University of Wisconsin Green Bay Phoenix. Um, Green Bay sucks. Green Bay sucks. Green Bay sucks. Green Bay does suck, but it was a team named the Phoenix, which I thought was pretty was pretty awesome because, you know, Final Fantasy fan, Phoenix down, blah, 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 so on mm-hmm. and so forth. So I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. And they're in like a Midwest conference. And I was hoping that at one point, because I didn't know if at that point that game had it where the conference is realigned. But I was like thinking, well, if I was good enough, I'd end up in the Big Ten then and stuff like that. But I'm guessing you never made it to the Big Ten. No, 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 no. I think I only played like two seasons of it. I was always much more into the NCAA football games, uh, which were amazing. Yeah, they were. My history with NCAA football starts on the PlayStation 1. I spent tons of time playing it on the PlayStation 2 and Xbox 360. I The PlayStation 2 was so underpowered for it. I remember I'd be simming seasons and I would just read books while I was playing because <laughs> it takes so long to process all the data. I think what made those games really stand out was the recruiting aspect and the constant roster turnover. Players would graduate, players would leave early to go to the NFL, the fictional NFL, and maintaining a dynasty was just much more involved than it was in, say, Madden, where players have longer careers and longer contracts and you can keep it together. Because it's really like two games in one. You have the actual gameplay of playing the football games, which, to me, like, I enjoyed it, but it was always secondary to the whole, I'm trying to run a program and build up a program, and so I'm like the Troy State Trojans, and I'm sitting here trying to get as good a recruits as possible, And it was always funny how those games would work because you would end up like, I had a really good tight end and he did really well because he was the only guy that could catch a freaking pass. And so then it's like, all these tight ends want to come. So I was like, tight end university, apparently. (laughs) That's a good, uh, that's a good name for some websites. Uh, tight end university. (laughs) I have a couple fun memories from playing in college. We had a four player group. We were playing together. We were all Big Ten schools. One of my friends, he went in and he assigned the real names to all of his players because because of rights mm-hmm. issues, the initial players that were on the rosters were all QB number 10 or wide receiver number 80. Yep. He looked up the actual roster and assigned the names to all the players, which is kind of cool. <laughs> uh, I had multiple franchises that I simmed with other friends groups, and it's weird that I hang on to this one memory so specifically, but I was playing with my friend Joe from high school, and we had a very heated rivalry. And I was, uh, I think I had maybe lost my program and had to go to another school and was kind of starting over. And I was working so hard to get this offensive line recruit because I always build from the offensive line. And there's like this five-star tackle that I spent all my resources trying to lure in. And it got down to the final three schools, which kicks everyone else out, and then you can bring them in for a visit. And I was one of his top three schools. And Joe, who hadn't spent a dime trying to recruit him, was also one of his top three schools. Uh, He got to schedule a visit first. Brought him in, recruit signed, I never got the visit, and I was just living. Because it limited <laughs> schools because I pumped so many resources in to chop that list down and wound up losing the guy. Which I guess makes it more like real college sports, but man, it was frustrating. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's that whole other metagame and playing against your friends sometimes with that too, even though it's not directly... And so then it was like, okay, what am I going to do here to try to do this? And so the, the really cool thing is on the PlayStation 3, you could do the online modes. And so then it was just really waiting for everybody to finish their stuff for that week, harassing them over the phone or text or whatever. And then you move it and you kind of move on to the next thing. And then just scheduling the times when you have games against each other to try to get those to work, 
which made it a lot of fun. But I think there was still something to be said about lugging the PlayStation 2 around, taking it over to my friend Clovis's place so he could play, watching him play, and then like ending up playing against Nebraska and beating them in his house, and he was watching. It was so much fun. I don't know. That's, that's, there's something to that. Clovis is a Cylon, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think he's still in the brig, actually. He's, that's where he belongs. Um, and then, so when we got to the end of that season on the PlayStation 2, uh, we were out at my friend Lance's place playing all the bowl games as a group, and there was other people there, too. And uh, people's really fun thing to do was to take and turn on the picture-in-picture, and when people had field goals, put porn on right in between the uprights to try to distract as much as possible. Uh, So, yeah, I I mean, that's the kind of friends I had in high school. That's pretty hardcore. That's awesome. (laughs) Your friends are a good group of people, especially Lance. In general, I love sports games. Um, I can list off a whole bunch, the NBA 2K franchise, MLB The Show, Madden, NHL, but I kind of moved away from them in recent years to try to focus on games with tangible endings because there are so many great stories out there and great experiences to try to experience it all. You know, I could play a sports franchise endless seasons, dump endless hours into it, and if you're looking purely dollars per hours of entertainment, that's a great value. But, you know, I've had The Last of Us for eight years or so, and I still haven't played it. Maybe it hasn't been out that long, but I've had it forever. Haven't played it, and I'm trying to check through all of these games with tangible endings. Yeah, I, I think I'm in the same boat. Every now and again, I get a little bit of a hankering to pick up Madden again. But it, it's one of those things where, and really the long shot mode, which is their story mode that they started doing, seems kind of intriguing. But I just, I just don't, without that other side of it, like the whole recruiting aspects and everything, I have fun doing like a fantasy draft to start off a franchise and then just playing through as the Vikings for a season or two. But I always just get to the point where it's like, I'm just feel like I'm missing that other part of the game that I just want to be there, but it's not. Clearly, we need to set up a day where we sim. We bring in Duhow and Lance and a bunch of other people, and we'll start a sim league and see how far we can get in a day. That would be that would be pretty epic. Speaking of epic, there are a number of athletes who I absolutely loathe, who I love <laughs> to hate, and some of it's fueled from video games, some of it's fueled from real-life sports. Without further ado, here's Tom Awesome's Top 5 Athletes That I Love to Hate. It's time now for... The Final Countdown! Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. So my Top 5 Athletes That I Love to Hate. Number 5. Everyone who has ever played for Ohio State. Uh, I'm sorry, Tom. It's the Ohio State University. And everybody who has ever said the (laughs) Ohio State University. (laughs) You know, I'm a writer by trade. You can't just stick the in front of whatever you want. When you search something on the internet, do you go to the Google? Well, When you go to the sandwich shop, do you go to the subway? (laughs) No, when you need to get on a train and ride somewhere, then you get on the goddamn subway. Well, if you're over 70, you probably do talk about going to the Google to try to search for something. We're not quite there yet. (laughs) We're getting close, but we got a little ways to go. And I know, I know, I know, Chris Carter, famous Viking, he went to Ohio State. Well, he didn't finish his career with the Vikings, so fuck him. And everyone else that has ever played for the Ohio State University. Well, and and to be honest... from what you hear about Chris Carter off the field, he was kind of a jackass. So I, I, I can dig that. I'll get behind you on that one. 
Ironically, that started in NCAA football on uh, the Sega Genesis. I could never beat Ohio State. That's where my <laughs> hatred for them started. <laughs> nice. Number four, this is not going to be a popular one in the state of Minnesota amongst baseball fans. No, it's not Joe Mauer, you bunch of haters. It is <laughs> Tory Hunter. So what, what is it that you don't like about Tory Hunter? The fact that I hate his face? No, it's not. I hate Tory Hunter because he left. Now, he played, he came up through the minor leagues with my, one of my all-time favorite twins, A.J. Pierzynski. <laughs> now, Pierzynski got traded. He had a reputation as a dick, but he was our dick. He was a gritty player, and he agitated people, and I swear, every time we played against the White Sox, he got beaned. And he was our guy. He got traded for four players, including Francisco Liriano, who had a dominant run for us, mm -hmm. Booth Bonzer, started a playoff game for us, <laughs> and great name. <laughs> Joe Nathan, who was Mariano yeah. Rivera of the Great Lakes for a decade, and I forget the fourth player, uh, maybe it was Brian Dunsing, Someone of less consequence, but that's a good haul for a catcher. Who that is true. Was a pretty good player, a 300 batter, but, you know, just not a superstar. And everybody hated AJ. He'd come back, he'd get booed. He didn't choose to leave. He got <laughs> traded. Not his control. And we got a haul for him. And then Torrey Hunter, like the night before Thanksgiving, signs a five-year deal in free agency to go to the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. Well, now they're the LAA of A. Uh, back then, they were just the California Angels. <laughs> and, you know, he has a couple other stops. He goes to Detroit. He comes back. Everyone loves him. Oh, great. <laughs> we have the ghost of Tory Hunter on our team. <laughs> Fucking terrific. He sucks now. Oh, good. He's a 260 hitter. His power is gone. He can't steal bases. He can't play center field. But he's Tory Hunter. Let's love and adore and worship him. He's the Toby Gerhardt of the Minnesota outfield. <laughs> I Not will, true. He was a good player when he left, and that's what made it hurt so bad. I, I, I will agree with you that A.J. Pruszynski got a bad shake, because I always liked him. I still liked him, you know, even after he got traded away. But, yeah, that's like kind of – that's almost as un-Minnesotan as it gets to say that you don't like Torrey Hunter. He left! He took a bigger deal somewhere else. Fuck him. You know who didn't <laughs> leave? Kirby Puckett didn't leave. Yeah, he didn't. Number 34 had a chance to go to the Boston Red Sox for more money, and he stayed in Minnesota. So, Torrey Hunter, oh my god, I hate you so much. <laughs> but not as much as I hate another athlete that I've already mentioned on this show. Number three, flipping sports, Kevin Love. Yeah, I, I think a lot more people here in Minnesota are going to get behind you on this one. Well, yeah, because everyone loves fucking Torrey Hunter, but that ship has sailed. We've moved on to Kevin Love. Now, Kevin Love was the lone bright spot in the Timberwolves for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's a good player when he's here, but he also forced his way out. And I, uh, it's harder to put a fine point on why I turned on Kevin Love so hard, but I just don't think he has any heart. And I think that he punched a wall and missed most of the season, and he carried around baggage from a contract negotiation that didn't go his way. And, you know, it just... It was a big souring on Kevin Love for me. Well, and I think he just kind of went off the rails, like... At first, when he started dominating on the team and being, like, the guy on the team, he seemed to try hard and work hard. He didn't kind of go out of his way to say weird, stupid, snarky comments, and he just kind of soured. And I guess part of that could be, you know, you're not getting a lot of support around you and wanting to win a championship and do something. But, yeah, he definitely turned a corner, and I think in a lot of people's minds, too, they... Just were like, what the fuck, man, you know? 
the deal I was hoping we would get for him is the Golden State Warriors for Clay Thompson, which, yeah, yes. in retrospect, would have been freaking awesome. But, you know, uh, I was hoping he would never win a championship, that he would have a terrible career and would never go on to do anything. Uh, but he teamed up with LeBron, won a championship. What can you do? Yeah. I hate Kevin Love. <laughs> Number two on my list. There's going to be a very similar theme running through here. Number two on my list. The last time I saw this human being play his sport, I booed every time he touched the ball. <laughs> when Stefan Marbury took the court for the New York Knicks. Now, a recurring theme throughout this list is people that force their ways out. People who leave. People who don't like Minnesota and go on somewhere else. And who also break up a special group of talent that leaves Minnesota hampered. And Stephon Marbury... He was part of the first rise of the Timberwolves. Him and Kevin Garnett and the great Tom Gugliotta got us to our first playoff appearance, and the future was bright. But uh, for whatever reason, he and Garnett couldn't get along, and he forced a trade to the New York Knicks. And it was the first time in my sports-loving life that I think a major athlete had forced his way out of Minnesota, and it just never sat right with me. Yeah, that whole breakup of all of that, that was kind of the height of my Minnesota Timberwolves like fandom was that run with those two in Latrell Sprewell and Fred Hoiberg on the team. I mean, yeah, my, Fred. my favorite basketball player of all time. And that the way that that all crumbled so quickly was so disappointing and so infuriating because I thought that the, that, it was going to be another year or two and they were going to be able to finally take down LA and go to a championship game and maybe actually win a championship for us in something outside of baseball. But, uh, but Marbury forces his way out. Great googly boogly signs with Phoenix and moves on. And yeah. years later, the number one person on my list emerges. Kevin Garnett. Boy, I completely lost my train of thought. <laughs> He's a part of that big three. So Kevin Garnett, is my number one athlete that I love to hate. Similar themes here. He was a superstar athlete for Minnesota. He brought us from obscurity. He made us relevant. He won an MVP award. He took us to the cusp of going to the NBA championship. And then he forced his way out. We traded him for a bunch of garbage. <laughs> Everyone from Boston basically not named Paul Pierce and set the <laughs> franchise back for a decade or more. While well, he went on to win two championships with Boston? It was something like that, it was at yeah. least one. yeah. It's it's really it's really painful because you have all these really good players that come to Minnesota, and then they seem to leave, and it's like a new renaissance in their career. Uh, Booth Bonser, for instance, left the Twins, and then he was like the ace pitcher for the Cubs, right, or something like that. I don't think he had an extended run, run of dominance, but Francisco Liriano was better after he left us and went to the Pirates. And yeah, there's a definite trend of players leaving Minnesota and flourishing. Now, the one thing I do want to caution you on, and maybe in post-production you can go edit this back a little bit, but you do know that Stefan Marbury is the basketball hero of China, correct? I was not aware of that. <laughs> That's awesome. He also got paid like $26 million and did not play for the Knicks for a year. So. <laughs> Because after he fizzled out of the NBA, he went over to China and became, like, a huge basketball star. Won, like, two or three championships with one team in, like, oh, Chengdu or something like that. But, yeah, he's, like, they actually have a statue in front of the stadium that he played at. And he's, like, revered as a star in China for basketball. 
I feel similarly to that as I do about Danny Harris before she crosses the narrow sea. What happens over there, I don't give a fuck about. But we'll get to that just a little bit later. Coming back to my number one athlete that I love to hate, and boy, my top five is going longer than usual this time. But That's I've, all right. I've got a big soapbox here, and I'm going to stand on it. So Kevin Garnett leaves. He flourishes out <laughs> elsewhere. And, you know, he's one of the best players in the NBA. So, great. All right. You know, good for you. You won your championships. You're a Hall of Famer. That's wonderful. But then... <laughs> At the tail end of his career, his productive days are done. Minnesota trades for him again. And he gets a hero's welcome. <laughs> like, he's playing part-time. He plays five minutes in a game, and then he's off for two weeks, and then he decides to come back and join the team, and people are just eating it up. They're like, oh, well, he's a presence in the paint, and he's great for these young players. No, he's not. <laughs> he is a player on the bench that we cannot use because he's not physically with the team. <laughs> I mean, Latrell Sprewell could have filled that same role. Yeah, he definitely could have. I mean, any, like, retired player could have. <laughs> so maybe some of my loving to hate athletes is driven by Minnesota fans in general. I mm. mean, Toby Gerhardt absolutely should have made this list thinking about it. <laughs> I loathe Toby Gerhardt. And I remember having this argument countless times when he was Adrian Peterson's backup. Well, if he wasn't Adrian Peterson's backup, he'd be a starter and he'd be great. And I'm like, no, he's not. He sucks. <laughs> You know, Adrian Peterson gets hurt. Toby Gerhardt fills in at a subpar level, and everyone thinks he's going to be awesome just because he's the backup to a star. <laughs> you know what a player is who can't unseat a star? He's not a star. <laughs> just because he backs up greatness doesn't mean that he's great. Yeah, unless, like, when you have the opportunity like Steve Young had, you make the most of it and win championships, yeah, you're not a star. Toby Gerhardt. <laughs> a quick list of honorable mention. And looking at this list, they have all played for my brother of the law, Eric, in uh, fantasy football. <laughs> They've all had multiple touchdowns against me. Jay Ajaye, he played a fraction of a year last year, beat me in week one because he scored two touchdowns, both in the second half. Nick effing Foles. Now, Nick Foles didn't play for Eric, but he played for me. And <laughs> I dropped him one Sunday in a last-minute tinkering move. And uh, the quarterback I played, picked up played fine, but that day Nick Foles threw seven touchdowns, <laughs> which wouldn't have been my only seven-touchdown game out of a quarterback that season, but I dropped him that day. So, Nick Foles, I hate you. <laughs> and Jason Witten. You know, great player, great career. But you know how many multiple touchdown games he's had in the last three years, Joey Burns? I, I, I do not know. One. <laughs> One multi-touchdown game, and it came against yours truly. So thanks for nothing, Jason F. and Witten. <laughs> on that happy, positive note, well, before we move on, is there anyone that you'd like to throw out that you love to hate, Joey? Um, or is your heart just filled with love and adoration? For I don't know about heroes? that. So when I was younger, I had a weird, irrational hatred for Bo Jackson. How could you hate Bo Jackson? The man was a transcendent talent. So I, I do tend to have this thing where when you hate good players. Well, when people get to a certain level that they're like the best, I tend to like sort of grouse against that, especially if they don't play for us. I get that too, and I think where I really bristle is when the player is not the best. <laughs> like the Toby Gerhardt thing where people think he's an eight when he's really a four. That just drives me crazy, but go on. No, and I think the other thing with Bo Jackson was because when I was younger, when I was that age when Bo Jackson was playing two sports and super popular and everything like that, I was really into Tecmo Super Bowl, and he was unstoppable on Tecmo Super Bowl. And so I hated Bo Jackson so much to the point that I had a Bo Jackson rookie card 
and I crumpled it up into like a ball. And so that thing would have been Just worth. Just think, you could have retired off that fucker. Yeah, well, I mean, it would be worth quite a bit of money now if I hadn't uh, really hated Bo Jackson. So that's probably the only one that really stands out in my mind. Your financial planner is just weeping right now. <laughs> Before we move on to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I would like to thank our sponsor one more time. Premier Health has solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident and work injuries, and more. I suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. So in just over a month, we're going to have the biggest movie event of the year coming up. Avengers Endgame comes out on April 26th. It's the culmination of everything that has come before in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Culmination. Abomination. <laughs> Domination. <laughs> That'd be weird if it went in that direction. Carrot rations. Carrot rations? <laughs> so like last year... Marvel introduced a new character to the Marvel Cinematic Universe months before the Avengers. And I didn't know anything about Captain Marvel heading into the film. I know you've had a chance to see it. What were your impressions of Captain Marvel? So I really enjoyed it. I, I mean, whatever's happening outside the movie with... And we'll touch base a little bit on some of the kind of girl power slash, you know... What air quotes feminist? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really get into that. I don't really care about that much stuff. There's some people that were bristled because of the things she said and how there needs to be more strong women in movies and blah 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 blah. Um, I know I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I think so. I know a lot of people really really like Thor Ragnarok, and that's the movie that when I saw it, I really liked it. But as time continued to move on, I just like there's just like things that like would eat away at me about that movie. Because I think people were like talking about, oh, it's the best Marvel movie ever, and it's this and that. I and am thing. so far on the other end of the spectrum. I, I thought it was fine, but yeah. it didn't. I, it did not resonate with me like it has with so many other people. I felt kind of like it was a Guardians knockoff, just with Hemsworth. Well, that and it's like the humor ends up like drifting to the point of slapstick so much of the time. And it's just like that's Thor was never like this, and that that doesn't mean that characters can't change or anything like that. But really, it's just trying to be a little more natural with it. And I mean, it was enjoyable, but I just, that kind of, that kind of frustrated me. Now, tying that back into Captain Marvel, I think they did a phenomenal job of building like natural, believable humor into it. Uh, you, you could believe that like she was this more, even though she was dealing with lots of serious things and had lots of questions that she was trying to figure out, like she's still that lighthearted kind of, like, quietly charismatic character who was, like, sort of, like, itching to be a leader but didn't know how to or continued to be suppressed from being that. And I thought that was really interesting and fun to see her develop throughout the movie. I like the way that they've toyed around with sort of who you thought were the villains and the heroes in the movie and, like, flipping everything on its head a couple of times was they, really interesting how they did that. They did a really masterful job there, and it's hard to elaborate without going into spoilers. Right. So I think we'll leave it there, but I had an expectation going into the movie about the way things were going, and it wound up going a different direction, mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed it. I think Brie Larson was absolutely wonderful as Captain Marvel. Mm -hmm. Now, she was an accomplished actress going into it. She's already won an Oscar in her career. She's yep. done a ton of stuff, and, you know, I didn't have a strong opinion when she was cast. It's like, oh, all right, well, 
she's an actress. It's a role. Like, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> but I thought she just did had such a great portrayal of humor, of strength, of compassion. I thought she was really just awesome. And I loved how the movie seemed to seamlessly meld elements of the other movies in the cinematic universe with elements of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show, which I believe it's the first time the show has kind of been acknowledged in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They pulled a character out of the universe, put him on the show, and he's back in the movie. And I thought it was just, I thought it was neat how they were able to tie all that in, and they inserted this prequel, and they just masterfully connected it to all these different properties within the universe. I also think it was really fun. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury has been this constant throughout everything, and seeing him actually as a more main part of a story for a change was really fun and interesting to see that character evolve a little bit more and get a little bit more insight kind of into the background of, of this version of Nick Fury. And just, I mean, in general, Samuel L. Jackson's a great actor. I mean, he does a lot of the same stuff a lot of the time, but he's just fun to watch and is enjoyable. And I, I think, I don't know, I just think there was lots of really good performances. Uh, it did a pretty good job of sort of setting up some of the things, clearing up a few like plot points, I think leading into leading into Avengers Endgame, uh, and so I don't know. I, I I I think it was a really good movie. It's maybe it's not in the top three or five for me, but it's, that doesn't necessarily matter. It was still enjoyable and fun and a good addition, and I think it's going to be good to have Captain Marvel as part of the Avengers in Endgame and moving forward. Totally agreed. And you brought it up to a degree earlier, but I wanted to touch on kind of, well, I'm dubbing it the girl power movement within Disney, and let me preface this by saying we are very pro-women. We love strong female characters. We're not saying that women shouldn't be lead characters. We're not, uh, you know, we want to take all of the politics out of it. But I wanted to compare Captain Marvel to Star Wars The Last Jedi for a moment because I felt like in Star Wars The Last Jedi they were kind of thrusting these female leader characters on us, and it just didn't feel organic, whereas in Captain Marvel, the growth of Captain Marvel over the course of the film, it just felt so organic and strong and natural to me that I just thought it was interesting to think about the two movies against each other in that regard. Well, and I think also comparing it to Wonder Woman, it tried to do a lot of the same things that Wonder Woman did with sort of those big moments when, you know the female lead character finally comes out on top and is like, rah, you know, and, and sort of Wonder Woman, I think, went a little more over the top with that, you know, um, which I still think that was an enjoyable movie too. But, uh, I mean, it's definitely trying to touch a note uh, with what's happening kind of socially right now, uh, similar to what Black Panther did. It kind of like hit at the right time and struck a note really well with, that was kind of like aching and out there for people to sort of attach to. So thinking about Black Panther, that released about this time last year. I think it was February of 2018 Black Panther came out with Avengers coming out roughly the same time frame mm -hmm. in late April. How do you think the two movies compare? They're both, they both feature smaller heroes or mm -hmm. less significant heroes from the Marvel Universe than, say, Spider-Man or right. Iron Man. Do you think that Captain Marvel garnered the same attention that Black Panther did last year? So I don't think it, it it didn't seem to garner the same attention financially in the box office. It did. I mean, it did better than Black Panther did, which is fascinating because Black Panther was a freaking phenomenon. Yeah, everybody was talking about that movie. Yeah, and so 
it's it's it is weird like trying to look at those like side by side me personally i enjoyed captain marvel better than black panther uh that's not saying black panther was bad or anything uh and she's obviously i mean looking at the comics and then looking at where i think they're taking things she's obviously going to be a much more important part of the avengers at least in endgame and maybe moving forward and so I think it was to the MCU maybe a more important movie overall, especially seeing as how they're about to make this transition kind of from the old Avengers Guard to the new Avengers Guard and see how that process works. Obviously, though, for the last Avengers or for the first Infinity War movie, they needed the Black Panther stuff to build into that, too. So I don't know. It is interesting how they keep kind of latticing all of this stuff together and building this all into what seems to be not necessarily the final movie, but it's like in this entire arc that we've been building up to for over a decade now, how it's all kind of building up to this one kind of big movie event that they're saying is going to be over three hours now. And it's going to be just this massive and insane thing to behold. Hey, nobody got time for a three plus hour movie. (laughs) Just release it on HBO for Christ's sakes. Do it as a mini series. Like, I don't. I can't sit for three hours. It's hard to find a sitter for more than three hours. <laughs> yeah, it's. I hopefully they have an intermission in between there because I know my bladder cannot last that long. Yeah, good lord, I'm probably gonna have a 32 ounce beer and a big cup of ice cream with this movie. <laughs> I'm gonna make. I'm gonna have to pee every hour, and I know it's my own fault for having beer, but I like beer. I like movies. I have a beer when I go to the movies. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> Resetting for a moment. Avengers Endgame. I think a lot of us have been looking forward to this movie for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Expectations are through the roof. Do you think that Endgame can possibly live up to our expectations? It's hard to say. So the very limited amount of trailers that have gone out for it and hubbub that's been surrounding the trailers, I think is them trying to... A, keep a lot of it close to the vest. Uh, Kevin Feige came out and said that that the only things that they're showing in the trailers are stuff from the first 20 minutes of the movie. Which is smart. I think I'll probably never trust a Marvel preview again after Guardians of the Galaxy 2 when Mm -hmm. they did basically the whole preview in the opening sequence of the movie. Right. I mean, it was cool, but, you know, I just, I am wary of all previews. Uh, So, like, from the rumblings I've heard... And I'll just leave it at that. A lot of the people working on it seriously and honestly think that this is the best Marvel movie they've made. Well, they've been working on it for a long time, trying to finish strong. And they have, and they've put a lot of resources into it. Uh, I I really think... I think they're going to probably take it in a lot of different ways that people are expecting, but then also ways that people aren't expecting. I really... I'd really be interested to see if they really get weird with it and like just kind of do a lot with where they're at now and sort of the hopelessness that everybody's in and then the weird ways that they can kind of daisy chain things back together to rescue the people they lost and sort of how people get lost along that way. I think it's going to be really, I think, I hope they do that in a really creative and interesting way. And don't do things, because the the knock up until Infinity War that I had with the middle two Avengers movies was they were so formulaic compared to the first one. 
Like, Age of Ultron was good, but it kept hitting on those same notes that Avengers 1 did. It's like, okay, now's the time where Cap and Iron Man fight or argue back with each other. Now's the time where they do this. And then, oh, the third Avengers movie, let's just do that again. And let's just really focus on this thing that everybody likes with Cap and Iron Man fighting and disagreeing all the time. Let's just really dig into that. So, uh, you know, now they have no choice but to work together to try to, like, right the wrongs and make things better. Uh, it will be interesting because, like, in the whole sort of memeverse of everything that's been happening, it'll be interesting to see to what extent Star-Lord is able to redeem himself because everybody's kind of blaming him for where everything's at. I mean, somebody had to have up the whole plans. I'm unfortunate that it had to be him, but it had to be somebody. And that's true. Sure as shit wasn't going to be Spider-Man. <laughs> that is true. So, also, I booed at the end of Avengers Infinity War. You booed? I booed when Spider-Man crumpled. <laughs> it's the um, only time in my life I physically booed in a movie theater. Mr. Stark, I don't I don't feel so good. Boo! Can, can, or Phoenix was just mortified. <laughs> Makes me think of Tiny Tim, where it's like, can I have some more, sir? <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think is going to happen? How do you think they're going to resolve it? How do you think all of the heroes come back? Because they're not going to leave the MCU with half of the heroes crumbled ash so it's gonna it's gonna have to somehow fall down to like i almost think the only way they can really do it is with captain marvel's kind of travels since captain marvel to avengers somehow she stumbled upon some piece of information that they're able to act upon to either thwart thanos's plans um, or somehow find a way to get the stones back, even though now the gauntlet kind of, like, use them? I don't know. Like, that's one thing that I think is going to happen. I really hope they don't do this, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be something where, oh, this is a really key moment. Oh, look at Thor going and sacrifice himself to make sure everything happens. Oh, look at this really key moment. Oh, and Iron Man goes in and sacrifices himself for this really key thing to occur. And then, oh, there goes Cappy jumps in. I, I just really hope they don't, like, belabor that, you know. And, I mean, comic books, people aren't ever completely dead. I mean, they said Wolver Wolverine's completely dead and he's back in the comics now, too. So, um, but I, I just, I don't want them to, like, just, like, smack us over the head with it like a friggin' mallet. Uh, what do you think? Well, I think there's going to be a moment where for some reason Thanos decides to turn off his immortality for just a moment to give the heroes just a fraction of a fighting chance. And I think that Captain Marvel is going to take that moment mm -hmm. and try to zoom by and grab the gauntlet, and I bet she whiffs. Oh, really? It's taking it from the comics. It was Silver Surfer in the comics. Oh, okay. Uh, but I think that she's going to be thrust into that role, <laughs> and I think they're going to keep that moment and just recast it, which I don't know how I feel about that. We'll save our judgment until I guess we've actually seen it. <laughs> um, and then, you know, since as long as I've known they were going to do the Infinity Gauntlet arc, I've always wondered what Nebula's role was going to be in it. Because if you haven't read the spoilers, turn off your phone right now. Or if you haven't read the comics or if you want to avoid spoilers, turn off your phone right now. Because in the comics, 
and I know source material is never sacred, and it probably won't happen this way, but in the comics, Nebula gets the gauntlet, and she just wishes everything back to the way it was before Thanos got oh, the gauntlet. Oh, interesting. And that's how everyone came back, and that's kind of how they resolved it. There's a big, there was a big scrum, which was different because the villains were involved, too, and there's uh-huh. a big scrum for it, and Nebula just happens to shamble up and grab it. And it's a very anticlimactic ending. So I, you know, the way she's been interweaved throughout the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think that Nebula plays some role in the ending, mm-hmm. whether it's true to those comics or not. I think she's got a big part to play. Yeah, I mean, and it, it, that would be interesting because she has kind of been a tertiary part of it. Um, it will be interesting to see, now that you mentioned villains, like to what extent are any of the previous villains that have been in the MCU... Will they resurface for any of this to try to do anything? Who else is going to be aligned with Thanos if there is this big sort of fight between him and all the Avengers? Uh, I know that'll be interesting to see what they kind of dredge up with that because a lot of his lackeys were finished off before they got to Thanos. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting. And I'm glad that there's kind of a lot out there to wonder about and to not know how they're exactly going to do that or not. Uh, I don't know. I think that's exciting. And I hope, I mean, I, I hope there's not going to be any leaks. I mean, there probably will be. Um, I'm largely on blackout mode. Like, I don't yeah. want to know anything else about it. If I hear people talking about it, like, I know I'm going to see it. Yep. I know I'll probably <laughs> enjoy it. So I just want to kind of go in it with my expectations as low and the slate as clean as it can be yeah i agree i agree two other things i want to bring up to wrap up our conversation here how do we feel about the big three of hemsworth chris evans and dope robert downey jr (laughs) being done with their roles in the marvel cinematic universe because it's largely been built on them yeah that's gonna be like the key sort of test to see if this whole plan continues to work they've already said that they're changing the way that they're going to approach it moving forward they haven't really given a whole lot of details but it's not necessarily going to be all these movies leading up to an avengers movie where everybody's going to be in there probably because it's so difficult and so expensive to try to do that with all of these actors Mm -hmm. uh but i think to an extent you've kind of let these characters run with that in a comic, you can continue to pump out a monthly edition of the Tony Stark story or the Steve Rogers story, and people that are fans of them will keep sort of jumping into that. But movies are kind of a different beast, especially if you're going to continue this overarching story. At some point, you've kind of run out of things to do with characters uh, to the point where you're making them do all sorts of different things in different movies, like I talked about with Thor before. and. And kind of what happens with Tony Stark in that, you know, in one movie, he's the brash, cocky idiot. The next movie, he's too riddled with PTSD to do anything. And then the next minute, he's the father that Peter Parker never had. And it's like, sure, he could be a complicated character, but I don't see the connective tissue into all of these things. And, and so as they've learned things from doing all of those movies leading up to it, maybe they're going to be able to be more effective with the Black Panthers and Winter Soldier if he's going to continue to be a big role, uh, if he ends up taking over the Captain America realm or if it ends up being the Falcon and and Captain Marvel. Having some newer characters that you haven't really done a lot with is interesting and it energizes storylines because it gives you places to go. Like Ant-Man hasn't even been utilized that much. He's had 
two movies on his own. But, like, when are we, like, being able to actually see him kind of step up into it a lot more and maybe play a much more major role in the overarching story, kind of like he did with the original Avengers in the comics, would be interesting to see how that all shakes out. Yeah, it will be very interesting. And Marvel, Disney has established such a bar of quality with these movies that I'm sure they'll keep on rolling and they'll keep being quality, but... Dude, I love Hemsworth. Hemsworth is one of my favorite entertainers, and it is going to be hard to watch Marvel movies knowing that he's not going to be a part of them going forward. (laughs) My second question to wrap up this conversation, is there an end to comic book movies in sight, specifically the MCU? That's a good question. Now that... For my part, I don't think there is. I think they're going to keep rolling out movies forever. I think maybe the structure as we know them, Mm -hmm. building up to Infinity War, like the point you just made, this is probably a once in a decade kind of movie setup just because of all that goes into it. Yeah. But I think they're going to keep cranking out movies. I don't think there will ever be an end in sight. They have to be careful. The, The thing I will give Marvel credit for and Kevin Feige a lot of credit for is that they have been so careful about not making, even though I've complained about it with Avengers, not making the same movie every single time. Even with these origin stories, they still find wrinkles to make them interesting and different. You know, so Captain Marvel was was different than Black Panther, which was different than Doctor Strange, which was different than Ant-Man. They're still the same origin story for the most part, but there were so many different ways that they handled it that it makes it interesting and leaning on lots of different directors to do that uh, helps to keep that interesting. And the fact that DC is still doing their own thing, they're not just trying to do the same thing that Marvel movies do helps to keep that somewhat fresh and interesting. Even though the zeitgeist wants to think that they're all terrible movies, you know, they're at least trying something different and not just caving to, well, Marvel makes the best movies. You just got to do the same thing. And now that the MCU, now that Disney bought Fox and the MCU would be able to wrap the X-Men possibly into that. Everything but Spider-Man and his villains. Yep. Like, it will be interesting to see how that ends up happening. There's a lot of cause for optimism, but just to end on a note of caution, Mm -hmm. we all love Star Wars. We all grew up Mm -hmm. loving Star Wars. I think everyone that has probably ever listened to this podcast has a certain degree of love for Star Wars, and that's a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) But the movies, maybe, there's been a lot of debate about the more recent movies. Not to the same level of the prequel trilogies, but the more recent movies haven't been as transcendent as the original trilogy. I get that it's hard to capture magic again, but they had a plan for a new Star Wars movie every year, and they kind of had to back off it, and so hopefully Marvel doesn't reach that same point where you start to get Marvel fatigue, like there's a little bit of Star Wars fatigue out there. Yeah, I mean, it's possible, and and any of these things, like, I mean, The Walking Dead, people loved that for the first few seasons. And then it got bad. And then it it just, it was too much of the same stuff, or too much of, like, the overcomplicating things, just to try to fill episodes, and so if they're not careful with it, there is an end in sight. And if, if people stop going to the movies or they have a couple that just kind of go off the deep end with different things, it, it could start to slow down. Or if too many other properties go out there and try to do the same thing and just oversaturate the market, it could fall back too. 
Um, so, I mean, nothing's guaranteed. Nothing's ever guaranteed, especially in show business, because if people just don't want it, then they're going to stop making it. OIO is guaranteed. <laughs> OIO is guaranteed, and so is the printed word. People say the print is dead, <laughs> and I defy them. People read books. And I know a person who read a book. His name is Joey Burns, and here is Burnsy's book buzz. What'd you read, my friend? That that was that was a really that was. I mean, it took a while to get there, but that was really good. It took good. a little while to get the wheels turning, and you know, I wrote most of my transitions ahead of time. But I didn't write that one. That was just off the top of my head. That was pure Tom magic in your ears, folks. I'm also making a conscious effort to slow down because I noticed in the last episode I get really excited. And when I get excited, I start talking fast. And I was editing, I'm like, holy crap. I sound like I was on freaking crack. So here's a calm and relaxed Tom. Looking forward to hearing your take on Of Dice and Men, the yeah. story of Dungeons and Dragons and the people who play it. Yeah, so I picked that for this week um, or this month. I read it a few months ago. It's a really enjoyable. So I really wanted to try to look back at sort of how D&D came to be. I know there's lots of stories, and Gary Gygax especially is kind of much talked about all the time as the, the creator of Dungeons and & Dragons. And, and kind of hearing that story about... And it's really interesting, especially when we are so in sort of surrounded by technology and it's so easy to communicate with people these days and communicate with communities these days seeing like how that ended up generating like a convention was where gary gygax and uh forgetting the guy's name the other game that was dave arneson there we go got there uh the way that gary gygax and dave arneson ended up meeting each other because a guy that gygax knew went to minneapolis and he played in a game with his friend that Dave Arneson was running, and it was so much cooler than anything he'd ever done before. And so they met at, well, what was GaryCon uh, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. God, I want to create Tom Con so bad. <laughs> you go, what are you doing? So they, they met there and then kind of hit onto this thing where, well, this is what I was trying to do. Why don't we do this? And so you had Arneson who came up with the system and, and was really into that type of stuff. And then Gygax, who was more of like the out there storyteller, could like craft things around that way and how they ended up taking it and making it this phenomenon that still lives on today. And so the book kind of walks that path where it talks about the history of how it started, the creation of TSR, which was the purveyor of Dungeons and Dragons for two, three decades until their untimely demise and then selling of two wizards of the coast. Uh, but he also then talks about as he walks through that timeline, sort of his touchstones with Dungeons and Dragons and how he was into it as a kid. Uh, the author was, and then went to college and found a little bit of time where he got into it, but then it wasn't cool anymore. So he got away from it. And then how he ended up finding a group of folks in New York randomly that he started playing games with and how those started to be like the most real parts of his week, uh, like sitting around with these few guys playing Dungeons and Dragons through this long kind of path that they were going through. And he does some interesting things where he has his little interstitials, like him telling the story of their D&D group as they're playing it uh, in there. And then he also mixes in some of the other things he did. Like, for the book, he went to a, like, it's not even LARPing. It's 
It, well, it, it's kind of LARPing, but it's Which a whole... for live-action role-playing. Yeah, and so it's like a whole weekend experience that's around it. And he couldn't really touch on it too much in the book because the... I can't, I can't remember what the name of the, the, the organization was that did it, but they only do it for like two weeks a year. And you pay to go there for an extended weekend, and you just sort of live in this fake world that they've created... For that time frame, and and they swear on secrecy because they want everybody to enjoy it in their own way without any preconceived notions. And he was talking about how, like, he found it's interesting when you're playing a character. And I think in video games or in especially tabletop role playing games, you find out things about yourself that you've been repressing. You know, because yeah, apparently I'm an asshole. <laughs> All of my tabletop characters are all these just annoying, horrible people that just steal things and run in and hit the button. And uh, you know, it's just a recurring theme through all my characters, no matter how hard I try. Oh, and one bard who did hip-hop. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've been really repressing that, Tom. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so repressed. But but it's interesting and in, in how that opens this up and how for some people, especially that like have social anxiety or anything that this is sort of their avenue to be a social being and to be able to find a connection with other people. And, and so, yeah, so he, he focuses on the history of Dungeons and Dragons and then the people who play it is actually a pretty big role in it because it's kind of touching on his own experiences and some of the people he meets like their experiences. And then he talks a little bit about like present day Dungeons and Dragons and how fourth edition was pretty divisive and people went back to 3.5. People freaking love 3.5. Yep. And then how Wizards of the Coast like approached that and realized they did the wrong thing with fourth edition. And so what their whole goal was with fifth edition. And uh, he's a journalist and he received an invitation to go meet with them about fifth edition. He's like, I don't know why I want to go see this. It's like not the Dungeons and Dragons I play anymore uh, and, and how he went there and met with the people and how passionate they were about trying to bring it back to like what people liked, but continue to push it forward and innovate off of it. Uh, so it was really interesting, like hearing about that. And the book was released uh, or at least he finished writing it right around when they were getting up to releasing fifth edition. So he had played in some of the like play testing and stuff like that. And then the events that they had that were sort of previews, of uh, fifth edition so it is really kind of a look from how it got all the way from where it started to this point and now it's like probably as popular as it's ever been i would have to say with the internet and critical role making millions of gajillions of dollars off of a kickstarter uh just to make a short animated cartoon uh which is a whole nother topic and something different but uh, so yeah, it was really interesting to see that. Um, one of my key takeaways is it more often than not does not go well when people who don't know anything about business go into business and run a business. TSR's biggest thing is that they were trying to do way more than they ever should have been doing. They should have just stuck with their tabletop role-playing games and, and sort of iterations off of that instead of having a Hollywood branch that was trying to license it to all these things and create their own TV series and movie and, and all of this stuff. And 
then more personalities kind of brought, were brought into fold to try to like fix things. And it just continued to spin off the rails until finally the only thing they could really do with it was just sell the company and let someone else run with it. Uh, so that was really interesting to just get insight into just people thinking they're making the right decisions and how it's just like living in the future, like knowing like how big of a mistake that is. It's like Jon Snow letting the wildlings through the wall, you know? He thought he was doing the right thing, and then he got stabbed in the chest a bunch of times. But we're not quite there yet. Hang on. Hang on with the Game of Thrones. I have something that I want to say about tabletop gaming. I love tabletop gaming. I really do. You mentioned earlier that technology makes it easier to communicate with people, and I agree with that mm -hmm. point. But I don't think it necessarily makes us better at communicating with people. Right. As someone who has been socially awkward all my life, I am remarkably comfortable sitting around a table with my friends in a role-playing game. I think it's an experience that everyone should try at least once. It's mm -hmm. hard to personify everything that goes into a role-playing game, but... There's a lot of creative elements. You think outside the box. You have a defined set of rules that govern how things work, and you have to try to maximize maximize those rules and your abilities within those rules to accomplish different objectives. You will find unexpected humor. You will find yeah. heartbreak when a character gets a crit roll against them and suddenly they're dead. Mm -hmm. There are just so many shared experiences that you can have in a tabletop role-playing game. And I think it's such a wonderful tool for building communication skills and teamwork and working together. And I think tabletop role-playing games is something that I'm certainly going to push on my daughter, and I hope that she has an interest in them and that it becomes something that we can do as a family and that she does with her friends and that it's a critical part of her life. I think it's just such a great experience. If you can find a group of people that are willing to try it, I think... Much like fantasy football, everyone should try playing a role-playing game at some point in life. No, I, w I would agree with that. I, I didn't really play many RPGs, the tabletop RPGs, until the last couple few years. And, you know, I'm kind of bummed that I didn't try to get into it sooner because it's really, from a storytelling standpoint, like, that's a lot of fun. Like, being a DM or a, or a GM, a game master, or a dungeon master, and sort of taking what I haven't gotten the chutzpah up yet to try to make my own thing, uh, but I will at some I did point. It. It's a bad idea. It totally <laughs> ruined everything for our longest running campaign. My uh, closest high school friends and I still talk about that and how I ruined everything. I created custom classes and I just, you know, I broke everything for the characters that they put the most time into. It, we had a lot of fun and it was certainly memorable, but ultimately my belief that I could do better than the D&D rules ruined all the fun for everyone. So I'm sorry, Duhow. I'm sorry, Patrick. I'm not sorry, Dan. Fuck you, Dan. I guess you played with us a couple times. I'm sorry. And everyone else who filled it in that campaign, you know, we had a lot of fun and I miss you guys. But I don't know, there's something about running a campaign and like being in the moment and trying to keep things moving or trying to get people to just try things, even if it's the most off the wall, crazy things possible. And I think the, the thing that I love the most about like D&D &D or any of those frameworks is you start with the rules and you, you keep the rules because it makes it a lot easier to have those. Uh, but you start with the story that they give you for the adventure path. But if you let the players be creative enough, it can go in so many wild tangents that all of a sudden there's all these plot points that aren't in the book 
They're just the things that your group is creating either on the fly and then you have to think about it. So it's like improvising your way through everything or it's these added pieces that to continue this story going forward. Sure, they're still doing the adventure path from the book. But then there's these other wrinkles because of the decisions they made and having that freedom to just roll with it and, and let them make this own world like feel like it's theirs. And, and I think everybody ends up really enjoying that as you move forward through that. And, and, and no computer game, no video game, uh, you know, can really match that because it as interactive as those can be, they still have to be programmed and something from the get go. But this is like people almost like a Ouija board pulling things out of the ether from around them. And it just sort of like rolls from there. There is something magical about it when it works. When it doesn't work, it can be terrible. <laughs> Wrapping up the conversation on the book, buy it or boot it? I would say buy it if you're interested in Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, I think it gives a really good perspective. It's a nice light read. It doesn't get too in the weeds about a lot of things. And it also sort of having it tied into the present or near present day and giving lots of different perspectives about how it's been good for lots of different people in lots of different ways is a really interesting, it's a really interesting perspective instead of it just being straight about the history. It sounds really interesting. I am definitely going to check it out. You know what else is a book? I'll give you a hint. I told you to buy this book. Uh, this is 2019, probably 15 years ago. I pushed and pushed for you to buy A Game of Thrones, the first book in The Song of Ice and Fire. And you bought that book, and I'm presuming you read it at some point. I did. It was quite a few years later, uh, but I did read the first... I think I read the first two books before the first season of the show came out. Uh, and then I think I was reading book three when the first season of the show came out, or it was something along those lines. Um, but yes, uh, and that was, it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal series. Uh, whether it will ever get finished in book form, the world may never know. Oh, oh, we know, Joey. So here we go. We are finally going to get closure for A Song of Fire and Ice, or as it is more popularly known to the world, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones was originally released in the U.S. in August of 1996. And at our gaming weekend earlier this month, I got into a heated argument with one of our friends about whether or not George R. R. Martin was ever going to publish another book in this series. <laughs> Spoiler alert, he's not. He's not going to. <laughs> not today, not tomorrow, not ever. Consider this. The books were released <clears throat> in 1996, 1999, 2000. 2005 and 2011. It has been nearly 23 years since the first book was published. We are never, never, never going to see a written conclusion. I mean, I, I'm going to take, we probably will not, written by George R.R. R. Martin. That's an important caveat. We're never yeah. going to see a written conclusion to the Starks and the Lannisters by George R.R. R. Martin. Agreed. So... I have uh, my friend John read the uh, histories of the Tar the history of the Targaryens that was just put out by George R R Martin. Insert masturbatory gesture here. <laughs> <laughs> and he said it was really enjoyable and lots of fun to read. But the fact that he's writing these things and not finishing book six and book seven is very telling. I think it got too big for George. 
it sprawled like crazy. Like, he couldn't keep it focused on the main characters that I cared about, and my interest just fell off a cliff when it went to the sands of Dorne in Book 4 and Mm -hmm. wandered aimlessly around the wrong continent in Book 5. And then it's gotten too popular now, and the fact that an ending is going to be presented by the TV series makes it a difficult quandary for him, because whether that's the ending he wanted to tell or not, or if he wants to go in a different direction... It's what five billion people are going to feel (laughs) is the ending. Exactly, and no matter what he does, he's either writing the novelized version of that, or he's writing something completely different that, because it's the second thing that they're seeing, probably won't match up to the first thing, unless he does something completely interesting and crazy with it, which... Could be the case, but like you said, it's probably never going to happen because he's probably not going to write it. Probably not. And maybe I'm being too hard. He created this world. He created the characters that I love in this world. I'm so passionate about the conflict between the Starks and the Lannisters. Um, Maybe I should cut him some slack because he created all of it, and without him and his efforts in the original books, there is no Game of Thrones series on HBO that makes the world go all a Twitter. I thought it would be helpful to uh, do just a little bit of a season season 7 catch-up about where the characters are, what happened. So if you haven't seen season 7, you know, smash your phone into a million pieces because here we go. Or you could just hit the stop button. And smash then, it yeah. into a million billion pieces. Okay, okay. So, so you want like the... I want the boobies, death and boobies, death and boobies. Wiener, 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 wiener. So... I just assembled a list of what I thought were notable points from Season 7, and you're welcome to jump in here. I thought the season kicked off a bang when Arya kills all of the Freys. I mean, the Freys' treachery with the Red Wedding is something that I will always remember. Mm-hmm. It is one of the strongest moments that I remember from a work of fiction. Like, mm-hmm. it, I remember the feeling I had, of the sick feeling I had when I first read it, and that's always stuck with me. So it was nice to see the Freys finally get their just rewards. Well, and, and then... The aftermath of that, when Arya is, like, wandering through the camp, uh, I'm talking about when the Red Wedding actually happened, and it's like, that wait while you're reading this is, like, still, like, on you about all of this stuff that happened, it's like, okay, well, how are they, how are they gonna come back? Like, I I know he's killed off characters before, but, like, like, but John, you know, I mean, like, like, they're not dead, right? Like, like your Catelyn's not dead, and you know they're they're just not dead, right? But but no, they're they're they're, they're dead, <laughs> and 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 so it was interesting to finally see them get back to that, and it was interesting because it was doing that at the start of the season is almost like as opposite of probably how probably how George R R Martin would have done it, and so it's kind of interesting to see them like flexing their legs now with. This, it's like we're telling the story now through to the end, and he's had his part in telling us what he was planning on doing, but this is us, and we're going to get to it. Like, okay, Arya does this. She accomplishes this. And then, like, let's roll through to the rest of the things, and it's like wham, bam, bam, bam. Like, these are the plot points that we want to hit. Jumping characters to everyone's favorite, Jon Snow. It is nice that there is finally official confirmation that Jon Snow is not Ned's kid. They certainly alluded to it in the book from the flashbacks, but it's nice to have that confirmation. Yeah. Also, a note on Jon Snow, he's kind of a shitty king. <laughs> you know, it's great that he was recognized by the North, but, you know, he's never there. He's always running around. He gets detained here. He gets detained yeah. there. Uh, he's just kind of a shitty king. 
<laughs> Whatever. He's fine. Any thoughts on Jon Snow before I jump on to the next character? Um, I So, I mean, it was you kind of knew where it was going to end up going, especially with, like, the bits and pieces that they play with his lineage. And so I guess he was kind of doing the wandering around in this season, which Daenerys had been doing... How many episodes? Uh, how many seasons before this? The key is that he did it on the right continent. He did it in areas that I cared about. <laughs> that is true. But I the mean, fact that they kind of wandered into each other in bed kind of makes sense. Oh, well, they sure wandered into each other. <laughs> the minute they both got on that boat, I'm like, they're making a little baby, <laughs> a Targaryen baby, a very Targaryen mm. baby. And speaking of Daenerys, I thought it was nice that she finally did something. Yeah, Jon Snow. Yeah. <laughs> you go, girl. I'm sure she was on top. Um, <laughs> you know, I hated that character for a long time because my interest in Game of Thrones is almost completely divided between King's Landing and just north of the Wall and the things that happened in that region. And mm-hmm. Until Danny made a real threat and came over, she just wasn't that interesting to me. Like she was fine, and I just I didn't care about her liberating the slaves and all the ordeals. And you know, I guess I kind of see that it's an important part of her arc and her growth, but. You know, that could have been an entirely separate book series. Mm-hmm. Introduce her in the fifth book. It's fine. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, I think a lot of it was trying to show this sort of transition and building of, like, the end of a line, and her only real person that she had as connection was her brother, who was terrible, and not someone you can learn from. And I think we'll get to it when we start talking about how who we thinks at the end who we think in the end ends up ruling everything and maybe i'm giving george railroad martin too much credit but it seems like her kind of path is helping to set up sort of where the westeros needs to go type of thing and i i don't well i might make more sense to talk about that later but yes it was good to actually see them make progress and get across what looks like just this tiny patch of water to finally like come play in like come actually have some sort of effect where everybody else is. Yeah. So the fifth book, one of the things that drove me crazy was they introduced the Citadel and a Mm -hmm. whole new cast of characters there. And they hinted at this larger conspiracy. And while that was mildly interesting, again, it was on the wrong continent. Mm -hmm. It was a bunch of new characters I didn't care about because they're not Lannisters or Starks Mm -hmm. or any of the major houses. So what are your thoughts on Sam's time at the Citadel and cutting all the other Citadel characters and plot lines? Well, I think it needed to happen. For the record, I'm in favor of it. I liked trimming all that down. I like Sam as a character, and I thought his time at the Citadel was interesting, and I thought that was really well done. And, like, the research he was able to do, it's just, I think, and, and the series did what they had to do to deal with this whole... You know, while George was writing, he was, like, trying to move all these pawns to all of these weird places. And so then it's like, well, how in the world do we try to, like, bring this together to a conclusion? Which is obviously what he's been struggling with for the decade that he's been between books. Mm -hmm. uh, Or almost a decade. And so I think they needed to do that. They needed to simplify that stuff. We got the gist of the main stuff that he needed to get out of that, and then now we're like moving forward. We're moving him back towards where he needs to be. Three points on Stark Kids in rapid succession. <laughs> finally, in Season 7, finally, I've hated this character since the first book, but finally, Sansa didn't ruin everything. 
She made a good call. And we'll talk a little bit more about it just a little bit later. Another Stark kid, Rickon. You know, in the books, I literally waited a decade for him to do something. Like, they hinted in the fifth book that they were looking for him. So I'm like, oh, man, he's going to come back. He's going to be the wild wolf. He's going to be really interesting. Nope. Throwaway character. Bing! He's gone. So like, oh, yeah, he exists, and now he's fucking dead. Yep. Suck it. Uh, third Stark kid, Bran. You know, uh... I got a little bored with him in the books, just sitting in a tree, but uh, in the show specifically, in season seven, he says goodbye to Mira Reed, who has been through everything with him, Uh, the daughter of one of Ned Stark's closest confidants, drags him north of the wall, miraculously drags him back through the wall, and his goodbye was just like, it's been real. That is a cold motherfucker right there. (laughs) I mean, really, I mean, she was really his only chance at, like... After a brief, brief technical hiccup, we are back. <laughs> we were talking about Bran and his saying goodbye to Mira, and you're making the point that the dating pool in Winterfell is awfully shallow. So, you know, how is he going to procreate? And the world may never know. And well, and maybe he can't. You know, maybe the Lannisters took that from him too. It's possible. It is possible. You know, and he's married to his craft, his tree talking craft. So maybe that's just his only passion now. Or well, the children of the forest. Mm. Also, in Season 7, we said goodbye to Thoros of Myrrh, who I thought was an interesting character in the books. I mean, he's this red priest, he has a flaming sword, which plays into the whole uh, legend of the Lord of Light, but you find out that he's just a charlatan, he used a formula on his sword to make it flaming, and that he had no powers, and then mysteriously in the Riverlands, after shit starts to go down, he starts reviving Beric Dondarrion, and he finds out that he has this amazing power and he doesn't understand it. He doesn't know where it came from. He doesn't know what his purpose is. And from that point on, I thought Thoros was a rather interesting character. But he's gone now, so what's the point of Beric Dondarrion? Yeah. So I think this is tied into the books and with, like, Lady Stoneheart and Catelyn Stark being this kind of living creature who kills Brienne of Tarth the last time we see her. Yeah, we're led to believe that. Doesn't doesn't it also lead us to believe that she kills Jaime? Something like that. It's really convoluted and... This is what happens when it's 10 years in between books. You forget what happened. <laughs> and so, you know, and and I don't know where that was going, if it was going to dealing with the White Walkers in some way, shape, or form, or whether she was going to, like, be part of that onslaught from within there, too. So I don't know if he was going to tie into that somehow, but now that that's not happening in the show, he probably doesn't have much of a purpose within Within the movie, within the show, you know? We'll find out in just a few weeks, I'm sure. So, here we are. We're about to start the last season of Game of Thrones. So who wins? Who ends up sitting on the Iron Throne? For me, for the longest time, and I said this in my Game of Thrones podcast with Duha, which I believe was the second episode of Outside is Overrated, but I thought it would be Littlefinger. And I'd like to say kudos to my friends for not spoiling that for me, because <laughs> I was way behind on Game of Thrones. It's been... Roughly two years since it came out that he got his throat sliced. And I, I knew from the moment that Sansa started speaking that scene that he did. And, you know, it's amazing to me that he's out of it. Yeah, I, I kind of saw it coming. He was always one of those that you figured was going to play some sort of a part. But it, it's kind of that typical sort of fall that those types of characters have where they think they're the master of this huge web. But at some point, you spin it too far out, and you can't control any of it anymore. 
And that's kind of that sort of flip that happened within there. And that scene, like, you know, when that happened, when once she started talking, you were like, okay, this is, like, going to happen. Uh, and, it, and it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see kind of how that carries those two forward because there was all that infighting between Sansa and Arya through there. So yes. it'll be interesting to see how that propels them forward. Now, it can't be as easy as John and Danny and love conquering everything, right? Like, those two have to meet horrible, gruesome, and unexpected deaths, don't they? That's just the way that George R. R. Martin's world works. <laughs> it could be, but remember, we're not in George R. R. Martin's world per se anymore. I'm sure he had some level of say, and I think that if he wanted John and Danny to sit on <laughs> the Iron Throne, that would be the way. But I just, it doesn't feel right. It's the obvious. It looks too obvious. Yeah. It seems too clear that that's the way that it's going. So something different is going to happen. And the bad guys are probably going to cut their damn heads off and feed them to a new race of trolls and, you know, God knows what else. It's going to be horrible. So so I guess my sort of original theory with the books, jumping back to sort of what I alluded to before, my theory of where it was going to end up going was that Daenerys was going to be leading this group of people that were the cast-offs or castaways of all of the other different families. And that by uniting these castaways from all the families, so now Jon Snow, which I always kind of figured she was going to somehow find him. I didn't really think about the whole Targaryen lineage part of that, but it makes perfect sense. That and the banging on the boat. And then having Tyrion Lannister with her, getting... um. Theon Greyjoy as a part of the retinue, having all of this sort of like group band of misfit toys grouping together that the castaways and the leavings of these great families were the ones that would then rise up and rise set the up new world order and set the new world together as one togetherness sort of jumping off of what you were saying then where I think the story is going to go is it's going to go in that direction, but the white Walker menace is too much or a key character somehow sabotages the whole thing through vanity or something and ends up being what undermines them and causes then the White Walkers to be able to overrun and bring an end to all of their lives is sort of where I think I see it going. So you think the White Walkers win and everybody in this world dies? Either dies or they flee back to uh, the other side and just sort of leave Westeros, Westeros to rot and try to set up something over there, which then, you know, HBO would love it, leaves it open for a sequel, you know, uh, to be able to develop maybe some other characters. Your main characters maybe die, but then you got some of these minor characters that you can push forward to try to keep things going. That maybe answers my next question, then. If you think everyone does, well, where does Jamie end up? And do you miss his redemption arc from the books? Because I thought that was one of the most interesting things that happened after the third book. Yeah, uh, and, it, and it's unfortunate because it wasn't as pronounced in the series because I think they added in more of the him kind of always falling back to Cersei and always needing to come back to her no matter what. And like his redemption arc is just forced at the end of season seven when he decides he's going to fight for the living and that's his redemption point. Right, right. It is too bad. Um, I don't know where that ends up leaving him. I'm guessing he ends up being like, the Thor or Captain America or Iron Man where at a convenient point he makes that sacrifice that ends up letting everybody else go on a little bit longer 
is probably where I see him going. I, I could see that, but I could also see Cersei finding someone to kill him in his sleep. Maybe Bronn? I mean, that would be interesting if that was, like, the very first thing that we see in Season 8. Is that happening? And, and then maybe Bronn finally gets his castle. He got his castle in the books. Yeah. He got his castle, he got his noble wife, and... You know, he was living the life the last time we saw him on the written page. And then maybe he's the one that ends up undermining everything at the end, too. He's a very likely character to pull something like that off. And that would be very consistent with who he is. I mean, he's a mercenary through and through. He's always looking for the next buck. Mm -hmm. So what is up with the Red Priests? What role are they going to play? Who is the Chosen One? Because every Red Priest thinks that they have found the Chosen Warrior of Light, the the Lord of Light, or Haldor, or... No, they keep popping up all over the place, and each one of them has a savior. So one would say that the most likely candidate... And are they all old as balls? Like, I I vaguely remember something about that with Melisandre in the books. Yes. But, you know, they all appear to the world as these young, attractive women. Well, and so they show it in the series. There's, like, that one brief moment of her, like, being super old. She takes off her amulet, and she's old as balls. Yep. And so, I don't think all of them are, though. So, like, Thoros, even though he was kind of a fake one, but not really, but maybe, but, you know, wherever that kind of completely ended up. I think, in the long run, Jon Snow is probably who they're going to say is that person because of him being killed and being, you know, as far as we could tell, completely dead. And then Melisandre being able to bring him back. That that's sort of the direction that they wanted to go with in that? There's a fan theory that I really like regarding that point, and that the fan theory, Phoenix found this and she related to me, but the fan theory is that Davos is actually the chosen one. Okay. The one with the power. Because in the scene, he kept pushing Melisandre to try to bring Jon Snow back, and she didn't think she had that power, but she yeah. agreed to try. And in that scene, there's nothing that made me believe that it was actually her. There were three people present. It was Melisandre, it was Sir Davos, and it was dead Jon Snow. And then dead Jon Snow becomes live Jon Snow. So one of those two has to be it, right? And it's not Melisandre because she was she thought it was Stannis. I mean, that very well could be the case. Uh, I mean, Davos is one of my favorite characters. Mine too. I like Davos so much. Oh. And he survived the fire on the Blackwater. I mean, that would be... You know, indicative of someone who was a descendant of the Lord of Fire. That's true. I, I mean, that would be a really interesting way to take it. That would be one of those things where it's the button hook that you're expecting. Uh, and maybe instead of having everybody die, which is the Game of Thrones way to do it, that's how they go is that he ends up being the leader and they're all like supporting him. But most likely if Daenerys is still alive, she's, oh, I'm the leader, you know. Yeah. So... So here we are. It's decision time. You think that the White Walkers win and nobody sits on the Iron Throne. I just, I can really see them going in that direction. And then maybe there's a small force that has escaped across the water that might be able to then save things over there. You know, I put together the plan for this podcast. I largely choose the topics, and I said a lot of the things that we're going to talk about. You would think that I would have thought through this moment <laughs> just a little bit more. I have no idea who is going to win. I thought it was Littlefinger for the longest time. I don't think it's John. I don't think it's Danny. I don't think it's necessarily anyone in their retinue. I don't necessarily think it's Cersei. I think that her yeah. time is coming this season, too. So yep. who does that leave? It's not going to be fucking Gilly. Sam? I don't know. Uh, shoot. Yeah, maybe it, maybe it's Gilly's little kid from uh, Craster. Oh, my God. <laughs> 
He's the Lord of Light. That would be a long and winding road. Oh, <laughs> uh, gosh, I have to pick somebody. Oh, and I'm still not inspired. Who do I pick? Who do I pick? Who do I pick? I'm literally freaking out on my own show. Sir Jorah Mormont? Uh, I do like the Northerners. What about Gendry? <sighs> the son of Robert Baratheon that yeah. like has always been kind of dwindling there in the background? Yeah, I thought that I expected him and Arya to hook up forever, so... Yeah, what the hell? Gendry and Arya. <laughs> That's my choice for the rulers of the Iron Throne. It's going to be Sansa, and you're going to hate it. I would hate that so very, very much. My distaste for Sansa runs so deep that I don't like that actress and other things. Like, I saw her at X-Men, I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ. Is there not another red-haired actress? And I saw that she's doing the Phoenix saga, and then Phoenix, my wife, is like, she's not even red-haired. She's blonde in real life. I'm like, oh. So, literally, could have been anybody. Terrific. Just terrific. We've had a long and winding road here tonight. Yes, we have. It's been a trek, hasn't it? It has been a trek. We are at an hour and 41 minutes so far. We have one last thing to talk about. We are going to do a very quick update on our Final Fantasy Challenge. It is March. We are playing Final Fantasy 3. We played Final Fantasy 2 to a degree. Neither one of us got very far. (laughs) Right. Some of the challenges that we ran into, that at least I observed, were the skill-based progression system. It made it hard to make my characters more powerful. The lack of inventory space. Without enough healing, I couldn't get through dungeons, and like everything was just a nail-biting pain in the ass. There was too much junk in the menus. It needed to be streamlined a lot more, and mm-hmm. there needed to be more guidelines on where to go next. Your thoughts on Final Fantasy 2? Yeah, I think the, the biggest thing that I struggled with, and I know a lot of RPGs get dinged for having jumps in difficulty, but this one just, they were so... You just go from one level of the dungeon to the next, and all of a sudden you're fighting the boss of the previous dungeon as just a normal random monster, and it's so infuriating... Because do I really have to jump out of here and grind for another couple hours in order to come back here to be able to take care of you? Especially with new guy who doesn't have any power at all. You can't even grind as long as you want because there's such limited healing. Like, you can't just load up on potions and ride it out. Yeah, and so, and I think that, and then the fact that you only gained each HP from taking damage, which is so, like, it's so difficult to try to build that up. When you have a character that's a backline character that you don't want to get hit because she dies most of the time when she gets hit. Or the new guy that, you know, you can't build up his HP in a normal way just by gaining experience. I liked a lot of the other things where you use certain weapons and you gain more proficiency with it. Like, that made sense. Generally, I like skill-based progression systems. But with everything being that sort of use-it-or-lose-it progression, that was very challenging. Yes, I agree. Jumping into Final Fantasy III, for me, it's a big return to form. It introduces the job system for the first time in Final Fantasy. I'm loving that. I just got the Fire Crystal, which unlocked new jobs. That was awesome. Nice. The pacing is much, much improved. You're in new areas all the time. It's shorter bites of content. You're bouncing from here to here to here to here. It's a lot easier to find out what your objectives are. There is a flexible magic system and... A lot more magic points to use. It feels like the materia system from Final Fantasy VII. It's a lot more flexibility. You can unequip a spell from a character and equip it to somebody else, and it's just a lot better. Your initial thoughts on Final Fantasy III? So I haven't made it as far in as you have. I kind of... 
when I hit that wall with two that I, I jumped in for a couple hours into three, it just really got through into the first town. And that was about it. Um, I want to jump back into it and give it a really good shake the last part of the month. I hope you do. We have about nine days left. I know. Uh, it might dwindle a little bit into April, but uh, I'm going to be going on vacation for a little bit, so I should have time with the Vita at that point. Uh, this week I also should be able to have time, so I'm going to try to give it a little bit more of a run uh, because I am excite- excited to play the job system and to see sort of how that develops because right now I'm just like the base job or whatever. And you said that 3 never released in the States prior to this remake. Originally, it was released on the Super Nintendo Entertainment System nope. in Japan? It was only on the Nintendo, so it was on the Famicom in Japan. Uh, it was well regarded there, especially because of the job system, because nothing else had really done that there. But at that point, by the time 1 was being localized when 3 was released in Japan... And 4 was already in development, and the NES life cycle was starting to end, and the SNES life cycle was beginning. So it didn't make sense to go through the time and effort and money to localize 2 and 3 to release in the States. So that's why Final Fantasy 4 was then renamed Final Fantasy 2 and released on the Super Nintendo. Uh, so that, then probably 10, 15 years ago, they remade it for the DS in the PSP, and that's the version we're playing. That's the only one that was ever released uh, outside of Japan. I'm glad it came over. I'm glad we're doing this challenge because it's an interesting snapshot to jump from game to game and see the evolutions and see where the seeds for the games that we think some of the greatest games of all time came from. So this challenge has been a lot of fun. If you're playing along at home, we will be playing Final Fantasy IV in April. That was originally released as Final Fantasy II, as Joey just said. Mm -hmm. And with that... This show is pretty much over. Holy God, we went on for a long time. If you're still with us, thank you. We love you. We appreciate you listening. March is an amazing month for entertainment. I can't wait to get my hands on Sekiro, Shadows Die Twice, and I'm super intrigued by The Division 2. Yeah, um, this month I've been playing Assassin's Creed Origins. The next game I'm excited for is Days Gone, which comes out in April, so I'm looking forward to that. But uh, really right now, nothing else really new that I'm playing. Sekiro is interesting, but I just don't know if I'm good enough at those games. We'll have to see. And Dan Tech, a Game Informer, said it's arguably harder than Dark Souls. That's what I've heard. I've heard it's really difficult. And I mean, he also said it could take 40 to 70 hours. That's too long for me at this stage of my life, so I really hope I get the opportunity to play it. It looks awesome, but yeah, I'm going to play some shorter stuff before yeah. I get to it. No, I don't blame you there. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of Outside is Overrated. I can't tell you how much we appreciate it. Once again, you can follow us on social media. I'm at Tom underscore underscore awesome on Twitter. He's at HobbyBoxBurns. You can follow the show on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Outside is Overrated. Or on Instagram at Outsides underscore Overrated Pod. We'll be back next month with another great show from the Midwest Gaming Classic, talking all about the classic games there, all the things that we played, everything we saw. Thanks again for joining us, and stay inside, kids. seconds for this drop (laughs) and now i talk so i have to cut it and just insert silence so i guess we'll just go
<laughs> <clears throat> Almost made it. 